September 18th, 2021, the United States Air Force will celebrate its 74th birthday. In 1907, the United States Army Signal Corps formed the Aeronautical Division, which was in charge of all matters pertaining to military ballooning, air machines, and all kindred subjects. On September 18, 1947, Stuart Symington was sworn in as the first Secretary of the Air Force, officially founding a new branch of the United States military. Interesting facts about the United States Air Force is that only 4% of all Air Force personnel are pilots. In today's episode, we are revisiting our interview with Air Force veteran Thea Gerbic. This episode does deal with mature content and discretion is advised. Dave and I are joined today by Thea Gerbic. Hi, Thea. How are you today? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Good. Thanks for joining us. Um, Can you give us a little bit of a background, um, who you are, what branch you served in, your rank, um, any fun facts about yourself that you want to share? Give us a little insight to who you are. Sure, absolutely. Um, I I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana, and at three years old, I moved to Portland, Oregon with my family, which is where I grew up. Um, I grew up in a commune or cult, um, not the kind that you see on TV, but uh, just a religious organization of sort of hippies denouncing all worldly possessions to worship God and serve their fellow human being. Uh, That would have been amazing if I had continued to live that way. But when I was 12, I got introduced to the real world. um, And from there, my life has had some wonderful ups and downs. Um, I am uh, about to be 40 and um, I served eight years in the Air Force. I uh, made it up to staff sergeant, but when I get out, I was a senior airman um, due to an article 15. Um, And uh, I am now living in Nashua, New Hampshire um, due to my ex-husband from here. He came here when he got out and because of some of my experiences in the military, he has primary custody of our children. I guess just a few more things. Um, I am one of six kids. My youngest brother just turned 19. Um, My youngest two brothers are from my stepmom. And um, my father, actually, uh, I haven't had family around in about 15 years. And my father just moved here from Oregon in June. And uh, it has been a life-changing, wonderful experience. What led up to your decision to actually serve? My grandmother was a Marine. My father was a Marine. And my brother was a Marine. I read is Marine. You're always a Marine. Um, I had been going to college part-time, paying for it as I went. Um, To be perfectly honest, I don't really tell many people this, but um, I was a stripper for eight years, paying, putting my way through college, as well as doing drugs. Um, And when I was 20, 21, I think I wanted to take a break from college. And um, so I took a year off and I just never had the desire to go back. Um, And I didn't know what to do with my life at the time. I wanted to be a teacher. However, um, I had a drug problem and the two don't really go together. So uh, my brother was in Iraq as well as his best friend. And I just felt compelled to serve my country as well as take a break from life and go have some fun with structure. The military seemed like fun to me. (laughs) Um, And so I was just going to do four years and get the rest of the money for college. And um, then I fell in love with it and I I stayed as long as I could. (laughs) 
I wanted to be a Marine. I actually initially started um, the process to become a Marine, but I have a tattoo on the back of my neck and they would not offer me a waiver for it. So I was actually in the process of looking into having it removed. Uh, it's kind of like a family symbol. So I was going to just have it put further down under the collar line. Mm-hmm. And during that time frame, um, my brother and his best friend, who is like another brother to me, they both managed to call me from Iraq and they, they begged me to go into the Air Force instead. And thank God I listened to them. <laughs> I, I, I can totally relate to that. Um, you know, my first experience uh, when I was going to enlist, I was actually going to enlist in the Marine Corps. My dad was a Marine. I have an uncle that was a Marine. And um, it's a funny story. I was sitting across the table at home with my dad and the recruiter. And I was fixing to sign the papers. And my dad looks at the recruiter and says, you can leave now. <laughs> the recruiter tried to enter, you know, he goes, well, I will. And as soon as he finishes signing, and my dad says, no, you can leave now. And I was, I picked up the pen to sign. And my dad looks at me and says, put the pen down. I put the pen down. And, the re- and he looked at the recruiter again. And he says, all right, you can leave now, like the third time. And the recruiter tried to rebut again. And my dad leaned across the table and said, one ring to another, you can get out of my house. I'm going to talk to my son. <laughs> so that that was where my uh dealings with the marines ended <laughs> and i went air force <laughs> yep yeah I'm, I'm sure you were happy about that decision too i think i was i ended up in the army after that though so who knows <laughs> <laughs> so when you um you enlisted in the air force and you were thinking that I mean, you said you liked it, but was there anything initially that made you think that you were going to like it? Um, the structure. Uh, I have a wild personality and structure helps me to maintain a stable life. Um, as well as my brother and I, as well as his best friend, my two brothers, I guess we were connected at the hip. And so I went to go and spend time with them many, many times in Pendleton and Palm, what is that? Palm, I don't remember, down in California, um, all over the place and just being around that whole world. Um, it was just appealing to me. It was fun. It was challenging. Um, it was something that I felt that not only could I succeed at, but I could be a star at. And, um, there were so many things about it that, that were appealing to me. Um, just having a restart, getting away from home, um, the money, the college, the respect, the honor, um, and and being able, I mean, it was 9-11 when I joined and just that that feeling like, you know what, not only do I want to serve my country, but I'm capable of serving my country, which means, you know what, I probably should. Yeah. So, it, I mean, you mentioned about having, you know, your family members serving and did did that put, I mean, it didn't sound like it when you're, you're talking about it, but did you feel like that put any type of um, expectations on yourself? I wouldn't necessarily say it put expectations on me. Um, my dad was long out of the Marine Corps by the time I was born. Um, my grandma, um, she she was out as well. Um, but it was it wasn't an expectation. It was more um, that I could the the ability to that it was something that was obtainable. Um, which a lot of the other kids around me, it wasn't necessarily something that was an option for them. 
Um, and it was for me. And uh, just the fact that I had the physical ability and the mental ability and um, and the, the honor that it wasn't. Yeah, no, I don't think it was an expectation. It was more of an honor to be able to do it. Yeah, I can I can understand that as well. Um, you know, you. Um, so you you went in the military and. Uh, you achieved rank of staff sergeant. And during that period of time, was there like, from what you experienced, you know, knowing your brother and his friend um, and any stories you might've heard from relatives that have served, was there anything that, that caught you off guard when you first went in? Um, not when I first went in. Boot camp was kind of like, to be honest, it, I should have been in detox and rehab when I was going through boot camp. So it was difficult, but it was what I expected. And it was a game to me. My drill instructor looked like Chris Rock, he even talked out the side of his mouth. And so it was hard for me not to laugh the whole time. But um, the one thing further on that I didn't really occur to me originally was that um, being away from family and friends, um, I'm not as strong as I thought I was. And um, having not having that support around you to protect you, the whole different ballgame. Yeah, the um, a lot of people don't think about it. You know, when they think about leaving family and friends, they're they're thinking more along the lines nowadays, thinking more along the lines of being deployed. But yeah, right. ultimately initial boot camp being away from family and then you have your tech school or AIT if you're in the army and you're away for that period of time, however long it is, it depends on what your career choice is. And so you're technically you're away from family and friends there too. Yeah. Um, so, so during that period of time, cause it's been a while since I actually went through air force basic when I went in, we got one phone call and a lot of letters. <laughs> yep. Yep. Nope. That was the same for me. Okay. Yep. When I, when I joined, uh, they had just started doing the eight week, uh, basic training, um, instead of the six weeks and yep. One phone call and nobody answered. <laughs> so, um, that was, that was tough. <laughs> nobody came to my graduation. Um, not that they didn't want to just, it wasn't an option for them. Um, so yeah, the, the being away from friends and family, that was, I always thought I'd go back to, I, I, I always thought I would go back. I never thought that I would never be able to go home. Um, that, that I guess was the, the biggest thing that, that was what I didn't necessarily expect was that I was, I was leaving home forever. Yeah. How did your experience um, growing up in, like you said, kind of a hippie childhood, um, how did that impact going into the service? Um, I, I don't know that it necessarily affected going into the service, but it affected me as a human being. Um, it gave me a mentality that I could do and overcome any obstacle. I, I mean, not just the way I grew up, but many other things that I had to go through. Um, not many people could survive and let alone come on top from, and, and I did, I did. And, um, so going into the service, um, I, I, 
I was empowered. I, I, I just knew I could do it. There was no question in my mind whether I could or couldn't. It was I couldn't. I was going to be successful. Yeah. Um, empowered. That's a very, I think, interesting word. Like being a woman, woman today, um, it's something that's said a lot. Um, were there other women that you joined with that you could lean on or support or that offered support while you were um, going through basic? Um, kind of, I didn't join until I was 25. And so they called me grandma. I was an aerospace ground equipment mechanic. And so they called me grandma age because uh, it was an age mechanic. Um, and so, yes, there were some of the women that I connected to, but the majority of them were just kids to me. And on top of that, with the life that I've had, it's very rare for me to come across somebody who can actually truly relate. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Um, now, you mentioned, too, that you probably should have gone through detox where. Can you talk some more about that experience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I was uh, 12 and introduced to the real world, um, I started public school. I could barely read or write. Um, uh, I was wearing skirts down to my ankles and head scarves because that was what was a custom in the way I grew up. Um, so needless to say, I was bullied. Um, I also have ADHD. Um, and as an adult, I've learned I have bipolar, um, which I'm luckily treated for now. But um, uh, I, at 14, um, continued to be bullied and um, the wrong crowd befriended me. They were the only people that were nice to me. And although my parents always were like, they're bad, they're bad, they're bad. It didn't make sense to me because they were the only people that were nice to me. So um, I got sucked into that pretty fast. My mom took my younger brothers and moved to North Carolina. The cult got disbanded, and my parents were having a difficult time financially managing. So my sister and I got left in Oregon with my dad and my youngest two brothers moved to North Carolina with my mom. Um, this was shortly after we, we got out. Um, and the crowd that I ended up in, that was the normal, you know, their, their parents yeah. would supply drugs for them to sell at school. And, um, oh. it was just, it was, it was insane. I didn't, I had no actual idea of what I was surrounded with. Um, as an adult, I have now found out what was going on around me and it was horrific, but I had no idea. I was completely clueless. Um, and for me, I've struggled with my weight. Um, and, um, I'm trying to remember, I, I had started working out when I was 17 and I kind of got obsessive about it. And so by the time I was 18, I was solid muscle and I, <laughs> there was this guy who asked me out and I went out with him and his roommate was a stripper and it just appealed to me. It had always appealed to me, just that whole world of crazy excitement. I was, I was, in, it was, it was intriguing. And so I went and did an audition and I loved it. I loved it, loved it, loved it. <laughs> um, and I was good at it and I was a performer. I wasn't just getting naked. I was a performer and um, right. I ate it up. But about a year into that year and a half into that, um, I was introduced to methamphetamines. 
Um, which I mean, I did pot and this and that before, but, um, and I got hooked, I got hooked really, really bad. And, um, so over the next eight years, um, it was, a quit stripping and get a real job and then go back to stripping and doing meth again and just a constant battle. And, um, so, uh, going into the military, I remember like having to go in for, um, uh, the, the delayed entry program meetings and stuff and being just geeked out of my mind and trying to pull myself together and hide it. And then like three days before I shipped out stopping so I could pass the drug test. And, um, I, I had committed to it. Like it wasn't something I could just get out of. I, I you know, it, I didn't have an option at that point. I had to do it. And, uh, so a funny story. <laughs> um, so, I didn't wear underwear back then. I, and so I went to ship out and it had underwear on the checklist and I didn't have any cause I didn't wear them. So my recruiter had to have his wife go pick up underwear and they were granny panties up to my belly button. Um, oh. <laughs> funny story. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty funny, but, um, so I, I, I kind of, I kind of, in a way, expected this to happen. Um, I I was about two weeks from shipping out, and I uh, was uh, my my one of my little brothers was uh, was on a razor scooter, and I was running next to him, and he tripped, and I was about to go on top of him, and so I tried to roll out of it, and I broke my collarbone. So uh, I, that was actually my my first introduction to opiates. Um, which okay. had really been, and so from the opiates, once the doctor stopped prescribing them, there was still that need for an alternate feeling. And then I went back to methamphetamine again, especially since I now had a prolonged experience at the time before I left. And, um, I had, I had planned and tried on, um, you know, stop using before I left. And I just, I didn't, and I just didn't, mm-hmm. um, uh, and it was never like my whole, um, it was fun. I would do it again. I enjoyed it. I loved every second of it. I never felt demeaned or stuck or like I had to, um, I felt honored to even be able to do that. Like people chased me home from school to beat me up and look down on me. And now all of a sudden they were paying money to be around me. <laughs> um, but it was, I mean, I'm from Oregon and Oregon, um, it was the, in the meth epidemic back then. Um, and I, I don't know, think, thinking back on it now, it was, it was just something I did. I just, I, it, there, there wasn't, it wasn't it, to me in my head, there wasn't another option. It wasn't like I could, or I couldn't, or I would, or I wouldn't. It was, this is what's happening no matter what. Mm-hmm. But I've never, I, it, I mean, I've had additional issues um, with substances after that, but um, as far as that whole world, um, once I was left, once I was gone from it and I didn't know anybody that did it, there was no way to get it. So it was just gone. I've never touched it again. That's, that's incredible that you've been able to do that. Um, and I'm sure the going into the military has probably credited some of that, <laughs> um, oh, because you weren't around it. 
Absolutely. Now, it, it did made, anyone? Yeah. Oh, it made me realize that um, not having access to drugs is the best way for me to not do them. Um, so mm-hmm. not knowing anyone that could or does or anything else, it, it prevents me from having the ability to do it. So that's something that I've carried forward in my life since then is to just stay away from it. Stay away from anybody that could possibly be involved in it rather than seeking it out. Yeah. A lot of people, um, and I've I've dealt with several uh, veterans as well as regular civilians on occasion to where you know they're they're addicted. They and and they know it, but they won't they won't take the necessary steps to remove themselves from that influence. And right. they that influence has no control over them when in all actuality it does. Yep. And I think it's something to be said about the steps you took to, you know, to go into the military and you removed yourself from that influence. Um, I remember, you know, when I was in high school and I got to be about a junior in high school and I changed schools. Everything was different. I didn't fit in. And, you know, I was smoking pot and drinking alcohol as, you know, as a junior in high school, which is not typically uncommon, but, um, I can tell that I could easily go down that road and stay there. And that's when I kind of started making decisions. Uh, you know, when I was skipping classes, my first semester of college to go get high rather than doing what I should have been doing and realize that my dad worked really hard for his money and that money that he was spending on me to go to school was basically being wasted. I had enough respect for him to change what I was doing. And I removed myself from the influences and that I haven't touched it since. Haven't had any info. Yeah. 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 In my life today, um, I, I, I really don't have, I have acquaintances, but I don't have friends and I like it that way. There's, there's no risk. I I can understand that as well. (laughs) But the other thing, too, is that um, the need to feel different um, has subsided. Um, And when I first joined the military, uh, feeling the honor and the pride and all of that, it made the need to feel different go away. It wasn't until I felt like crap over other things that I needed to feel anything different than the way I was feeling, which then led me back to the wrong path. So do you feel like the, that that need to feel different, you said, was not there? Was it because you felt already, you felt included while you were yep. in? Yeah. Yeah, I felt included. I, yeah, I was top of my class. I was the fastest. I was the strongest. I was all the things that made me feel good was what the military gave me. Yeah, that sense of belonging is a pretty strong factor uh, when you go in the military. And, you know, I know a lot of veterans miss that once they get out. Um, yeah, not the same. Right. Do you feel like that's, that started when um, you, the community that you were a part of as a child kind of disbanded, like you started searching for that? Yeah. Yeah, the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I had I'm taken sure. my, 
I had taken my life in a direction where there was literally the opposite of that. Um, and so when I found it again, it makes me thrive. Absolutely. I, I, I wish I could go back and make a couple different decisions. Um, cause I still <laughs> in the military today. Um, but yeah, the military, um, it, it saved my life. It gave me life. Um, as, as well as, um, some other things that have been challenges, but because of those challenges and being able to overcome them, I have now been able to make a difference in a lot of people's lives. That's awesome. So a real quick question along those lines. Um, you know, you said those experiences have led you to where you are now, and now you can make a difference in a lot of people's lives. Uh, do you find that that's your new passion, your new purpose? Um, kind of, I, 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 I don't necessarily make it a purpose. I just let it be part of who I am. Right. Um, I, I am at this point in my life, somebody who I'd wished I'd always been. Um, I'm, I'm in perfect shape. I'm gorgeous. Um, I have a bubbly outgoing personality. And as a kid, the way that, that everybody treated me, if somebody even just smiled at me, who I looked at as a popular person, it in a way validated me. And so I feel like I am now able to validate other people um, who felt the way I did when I was younger. And I, I'm able to uh, just have this, uh, I've, I've been through so much and in, you know, everything is relative and um, to be able to be even halfway happy with my life, I'm ecstatic. I don't want to die today. And that is so much better than what I had before. Anything is possible. And just being who I am um, has made a big difference. Just saying the things that I say or having the outlook that I have or being able to bring a different light to somebody's thoughts. It makes a difference in people's lives constantly, um, as well as doing things like this or, you know, anything anybody asks of me to be of service. I I'm happy to do. Um, and it's gratifying to me as well as uh, being able to, to help some of my fellow human beings. That's an incredible outlook to have. Yeah, definitely. It's a lot better than what I lived with the first half of my life. <laughs> yeah, I think as long as you found it, I think that's that there's a lot of, like you said, I, I can tell that you're empowered today. Um, yeah, yeah, so. very much so. Very, very, very much so. <laughs> you know, yeah, I look around at my life sometimes when I'm feeling stressed out or down or anything other than completely ecstatic about life. And I think about where I've been in the past and what I've been through. I'm like, wow, your life is fucking awesome. So it, it, it brings me back to, to being happy again and being driven and motivated. And, um, and if I can't find that, I know where to go to get it. I know how to get support and how to get help now and when to do that. And, um, uh, the VA has been, uh, I can't even say enough about the VA. It has, I'm alive because of the VA. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I had a question for you and I totally blinked on it. <laughs> so you said um, you have a few children um, and an ex-husband. You, you, did you meet him in service uh, when you were serving? 
I did. Yep. Uh, we met in uh, on the flight line in Japan. Um, that was my I'd been in for about a year and a half uh, when when he hunted me down and uh, stalked his prey and he got it. <laughs> um, and then we actually had our child in Japan. Um, we we didn't end up getting married until a few years later. Um, he ended up getting stationed at um, in Idaho um, and I was in Nebraska. And so we thought that if we were in the same place, we could make it work. And so we both put in packages to be drill instructors. Um, we both got picked up, but then I fractured my hip. So my package got withdrawn. And after I healed, I put a package in to be an MTL, got accepted for that. Um, and so at that point was when we got married. And then that's after we had our son. Um, the, uh two years after two years after we were married we had our son um so our daughter uh just turned 12 um and our son will be eight in february but my my ex-husband unfortunately um is most of the cause of my downfall are you comfortable with sharing some of that? Yeah, I am. Um, um, so that's where I say not having family and friends around to, to protect you comes in is that my ex-husband, um, and given he was going through his own, his own health back then, and he's, he's a different person today, not a great person, but a lot better than he was. Um, he, he was able to, my family would have never let somebody like him in my life. Um, my brothers would have hunted him down and told him never to talk to me again, but because I didn't have them and didn't have them to protect me, I fell into it. And, and I thought I was stronger than that. I was one of those women that I thought that I could never possibly be an abusive relationship. Um, and, and I ended up there and I watched it happening. I felt it happening and I just couldn't even stop it. It was, um, it was, uh, it was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. Um, uh, <laughs> where, where it really took a turn for the worse was, um, when we were, he was a, he was a TI and I was an MTL. We were in Texas and, um, we were the power couple. Everybody knew us. He would train his airmen at basic. And then I'd have him at tech school at Fort Sam. Um, and when, when everything started having issues, um, the whole military was involved and everybody knew it was happening and there was no contact orders. And, um, it, it I was stuck. I, 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 um, there was a point where if I could have, I would have disappeared in the middle of the night and just changed my name and never come back. Um, I had even at one point looked into liquidating everything, I, all my assets and taking off to Mexico. Um, I ended up attempting suicide instead, but, <laughs> um, uh, the, the worst part about it was that, um, I, I had my rope taken as an MTL. And so while I was going through this living hell, I got put into a basement office, uh, sitting in a corner at a computer with nothing else around me. No, no decorate, a literally a, a, a tan corner 
computer doing data entry. And for a year, while I was going through a living hell, that's what I had to try to live with. And um, it didn't work out so well. Do you find that women in the military um, have similar stories towards uh, like yours with their significant others? Um, from my experience with the other women that I've gone to like groups with and, and all of that kind of stuff with is they have similar stories. However, their stories are, um, more related to, um, their higher ups, uh, sexual assaults, um, and being stuck in a situation where they were afraid to say anything. Um, it was kind of the same experience, just in a much different way. But feeling like you're trapped, um, it's tough. It's, 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 um, it's tough. It's really tough. You know, I, I, you can't just quit, you know, and you can't just decide to get a different job or move or, or anything else. You, you are imprisoned in your own life. And, um, I, I think, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't really, I think that, that myself, as well as some of the other women that I've gone through recovery with, um, have similar feelings just because of different circumstances. No options and no way out. Yep. Yeah. The only way out was death. Yeah. And I tried to take it. How did you come back from that? Um, <sighs> Well, I remember when I uh, came to in the hospital, um, I remember the first question I had was, why am I still alive? And um, they they kept me um, locked up or whatever you want to call it for almost three months. Um, I was an inpatient facility and um, just all of the support and the help that I got. It, it was almost kind of like. <sighs> Everything changed when that happened. Um, it, I learned how to get help. Um, I, I didn't quite understand how to use that help at the time, but I learned how to get it. And I started being given some, some tools to try to um, deal with life. And um, I... <sighs> I don't, I don't know. Like I, on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm not sure what kept me going. I mean, my kids, obviously. Um, but that was part of the reason why I tried to kill myself was because I didn't want them growing up to see me the way I was. Um, that was the biggest reason for suicide was just, I didn't want them to know their mom like that. And um <sighs> Once I, once after that three months, I, I didn't want them growing up with a father like that. And so that kind of gave me a different drive to be better and to, I don't know. I just, all of a sudden there was an out, there was a way out the three months in the impatient, it was, it was away from everything. It was my escape and it gave me enough time to just be able to realize that I wasn't as stuck as I thought I was. Mm -hmm. 
you say it allows you a, a, a period of time to decompress so that you could get everything squared away in your thought processes? Yeah, it, 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 I, I had never really been honest about my true feelings and what was going on inside my head. I tried to hide it. Um, so that, that point was when there's no hiding it after that, <laughs> pretty blatantly obvious how you feel when you attempt suicide. Um, and so that's when I was starting to get the help that I actually needed. Um, and that, that's what started me. Uh, obviously I've had a lot more struggles along the way, but, um, on top of that, that was when my mental health, um, issues started being attempted to, to, to deal with. Um, it, it's. Uh, only about four and a half years ago um, was it that I actually finally got on the right medications and that I'm stable and, and uh, I feel okay. And, um, but that was when it started, but it was hope. I had hope. It gave me hope that, that, that it would be okay. I just had to keep trying and, um, uh, and I couldn't let him win. I couldn't let him win. And if I died, he won. I always remember he had, he had, he's always had his thumb over me. Like he's, he's always managed to have some kind of control over me. And, um, I realized that my attempt to release that control by suicide was really only giving him that much more control. And so I needed to take control back. And by doing that, I needed to be better. And if I was better, I'd feel better. And when I felt better, I could do more. And when I did more, I, he no longer could be in control of me for the most part. I mean, he still has a lot of control over my life. Um, my suicide, I actually attempted suicide twice. Um, the, the first time was before our son was born. Um, we had been married for, well, we got married about eight months prior to me being able to get down to Texas. He was down there. And then me and my daughter, Gianna, we went down there. And six months after that um, was my first suicide attempt. Uh, he, he was a chronic cheater and manipulator and um, extremely emotionally abusive. And I would I would I would leave him I you know I got a no contact order I would do anything because as soon as he was able to talk to me somehow he was able to manipulate me back into the relationship and he had manipulated me back into the relationship yet again and cheated on me yet again and I felt like I just couldn't get away from him and the first time um, I had taken a bunch of pills and then I realized, what the fuck am I doing? I, I don't want to do this. I tried to throw them all up, um, ended up in the hospital, but I had changed my, my decision at that time. The second time, um, my daughter was in the house um, the first time and both my son and daughter were in the house the second time. Um, I, I had a plan. Um, I. I had waited until I felt the medication kicking in. And then I, I sent my ex-husband a text message, come home, 911. Because um, in my head, that the kids were napping. He'd be home before they woke up. And, um, and so it wasn't like I was leaving them in a dangerous situation. At least that's what it was in my head. But 
because of that, um, he has primary custody of the kids and um, it's been, uh, it sucks. It sucks that I got, I ended up where I was due to his actions and yet my actions ended up putting him in even more control. And um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> okay. No, no worries. But today he doesn't have control over my emotions. He, he, he has a lot of control over the kids. He's very controlling. He never left the, the drill instructor mentality behind him. He's so hard on them. And, um, I, I try to get every last second that I can with them. And he does everything he can to try to limit my, my contact with them. Um, I mean, I have, you know, my every other weekend and my Wednesday holidays and I go to all of their games and practices and every other opportunity I have to be around them. Um, but he he does everything he can to try to prevent me from from having anything to do with them. And so in that way, he has control. But every other aspect, he no longer has control. He doesn't have control over my emotions, over my daily life, over what I do. I get to be happy. And he doesn't get to take that away from me. That's pretty powerful right there, all in itself. It took a long time to get there. Long time. Long time. I think the most important part is that you did get there. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It it gives me, uh, and everything is relative. And that's why I get to be so happy today is, you know, out of the little things that I have and, and I, it's, it's, I don't want to die today and not wanting to die feels damn good. (laughs) I love listening to how hopeful and optimistic Thea is. In parts two and three of the interview, she continues to be incredibly open and transparent about her life experiences. It shows healing and happiness is possible despite dark times. In this next part of her interview, she talks about her experience being an active duty service member in the Air Force and her struggles with PTSD. All right. Welcome back, Thea. Uh, For this portion, we're going to dive into your experience with being an active duty military. Okay. How are your expectations versus reality different for service? Um, I think it was actually a lot what I expected. Um, I was pretty mentally prepared going in. I guess the thing that I didn't expect was to find out that I wasn't as strong as I thought I was. How so? I didn't think that I could ever end up in the situation that I ended up in. Um, I thought that I was way too strong and powerful and smart and everything else to be able to fall into an abusive relationship. Um, and then to react to it the way that I did, you know, I, I did not handle it in, in a, in a way that I, that I ever thought that I would. And, um, I mean, I knew that I'd always struggled with, um, with some mental health stuff, some depression. Um, but I, I always thought that it was just uh, because of my past and the way I grew up. It never really occurred to me that it was a chemical thing. But the rest of it, I, 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 I'd spent enough time around my brother and um, I expected it to be very much like what it was, I guess. Um, I didn't ever think that it would make me feel trapped or useless. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know. I guess it depends on on at what point in time uh, of my military career 
we're talking about. Sometimes um, it was everything I expected and other times it was um, not what I expected at all. Um, but for the most part, I think it was it was what I thought it would be. Your story is definitely definitely unique in the way that I think you hear a lot of stories about people coming out of the military and dealing with addiction or PTSD or kind of the, the whole gambit of different issues. Um, and you went in after dealing with a lot of those things. Which I've actually heard that going in uh, after dealing with stuff like that actually leaves you more prone to PTSD taking place again. There's several studies that are out um, and, and, you know, studies are exactly exactly what they are. There's studies that there's no set. Um, that's the word I'm looking for. There's there's no set in stone thing regarding post-traumatic stress. But there's studies that are show that show that a lot of the post-traumatic stress that people are dealing with, either after deployment or, you know, serving time in the military or even as a first responder, that they can those those stressors can be triggered and link all the way back into childhood. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in, in there's there's something to be said for that. But at the same time, you know, there's less than one percent of the population in the United States that uh, actually raised their right hand and took the oath to preserve our nation. So, yeah, there's other stressors that go in with that as well. Right. Right. It took me a really, really long time to not feel guilty about needing the help that I needed because of the situation. I, I was never deployed, nothing ever. I wasn't sexually abused. All of my issues or my bad stuff that was experienced um, in my head wasn't directly related to the military. And so it made me feel guilty for getting help for it or, or disability or anything else. It always made me feel like my story was not worth it. Um, and then I realized that um, the reason why my story got so severe was because of the, the way that you, because of the military, not because of the military, but I couldn't leave. I, I, I couldn't quit. I, I couldn't get away. I, my ex-husband and I, our, our issues were very, very public. Um, he was sleeping with his trainees and uh, the, the, trauma that I went through given every, you know, I always like, it was my relationship trauma, like how that's not the military's fault. I chose that. Um, and it took me a really long time to actually feel like I was worth getting help. I, I was worth their time. Like I, I deserved to, to get support for it. And, um, I mean, it's actually even been something that's been fairly recent within the last three or four years has been when I have finally felt validated that because of my military career, um, there was experiences that I had that have affected me in negative ways that now I deserve to get help for. Um, and I imagine that there's probably other women out there like that, too. Um, but uh just like whenever I have what they call uh stateside or what do they call it? Um, home, home front, home front 
PTSD or whatever it's called. Like I, I always felt like I shouldn't because I hadn't been deployed and um, the guilt that comes along from that um, sucks. But I've also heard that people that were deployed, they feel the same guilt. They feel the same, not deserving. And so um, being able to acknowledge that and to accept it and to realize, you know what, I, I am worth it and I do deserve it. And um, I, my story is powerful and my, my experience can help other people. And um, although it wasn't, you know, deployment related, what I went through was a direct effect of being in the military. I don't want to say it was a direct effect of the military, but it was a direct effect of being in the military. I, I can understand that. Uh, and I have a question and feel free to answer or choose not to. Do you feel during that period of time that your leadership actually had were supportive of you? Do you feel they actually actually were leaders? Um, there were some that were, but um, most not. Um, my commander um, was very supportive and amazing. Um, however, my direct supervisor, um, she was terrible, absolutely terrible. Um, my, my ex-husband, he's extremely manipulative and charming and, um, he's capable of making every situation out to be where he's in the right. And I was in the wrong, no matter what it was. And I was always made out to be crazy or whatever the case might be. And because of the world we lived in, everything was interconnected. And so, um, there were airmen that went through his boot camp, and then they came to me as my trainees. And I didn't know at first, I had no idea. So there were airmen that I was training that had slept with my husband, and I had no clue. And then when I found out about it, and then they're still right there. It, it, it um, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, there were, yeah, there was a lot of really wonderful, great, great support and wonderful people. The higher, higher ups, most of my commanders and first sergeants um, were exceptional. My direct supervisors or my shop supervisors, there was a lot that were good, but a lot that weren't. A lot that weren't. I'm not trying to bash anyone or anything, but what I've noticed, of course, I spent the late 80s into the mid 90s in the Air Force. Um, and then Many years later, I went back in, but I went army. And what I've noticed is that a lot of times promotions are based upon knowledge and information oh, rather, yeah. rather than ability to actually lead people. Yeah. Um, and the people that a lot of people that tend to get promoted, they don't have the leadership training. They haven't had it. They don't and they don't want it some, most of the time. And so. They don't, number one, they don't know how to lead. But number two, they, they, they just, they're just in it for the power trip. Oh, absolutely. Really, really sad that, that that takes place, but that's in all walks of life. That's not just military. That doesn't just take place in military. That's, that happens in corporate America. You know? Yeah, not as much though. Not as much. I mean, there's no time and grade, and then you pass your tests and you right. get promoted. And you know, right. in the in the, in the civilian world, there's a lot more um, 
based on performance and ability and skill and things like that. I totally agree with. Yeah. And you can get fired, you know, in the military to try to get somebody kicked out of the military. Oh, my God. It is not that easy. Unless they, of course, pass, fail a drug test or something like that. But if if they just aren't great at their job, it's as long as they're passing their test and they show up to work, there's really nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I, there's I'm, there's other questions, but I just want to say this to you. Um, the fact that you are here today and that you're telling your story and that you're willing to be an open book of sorts as long as it helps other people, whether they're military, veteran, civilian, that speaks highly of your leadership. I want other people to know that they can get help and that help will help them. It, that's the one thing that I am grateful that I learned how to do. And it was in that three months inpatient after I attempted suicide that I learned how to do and that's how to get help and accept it. And um, the help is there. It's just a matter of allowing it to support you and and to reach out for it. You have to ask for it. It's not just going to appear at your front door. And when you ask for it, I mean, maybe not 10 years ago, but today, the VA, all of the programs, I mean, Homeland Heroes. <laughs> when I met Julie, my kids and I were sleeping on an air mattress, the three of us on one air mattress. She got us all beds. I mean, there's just so many things that people take for granted that, you know, when you're having a hard time and you need help, just fucking go get it. It's there. Ask for it. Don't don't wait. Don't wait. I think part of that has to do with. um there's there's two different types of pride there's pride in who you are as a person what you do what you stand for and then there's the pride where you're too stubborn to seek help and or to go ask for it and you have to know the difference between the two one is okay the other one not so much um and I, I know a lot of veterans and they're, they have pride, but then at times they become prideful and either they don't think they deserve it or they don't think they need it. One of the two. And yet they struggle or they allow their families to struggle. And that's that's. That's not a good thing. I, yeah. I, the other part to that, too, would be that they don't want anybody to know that they correct. need help. And yeah. Yeah. Yep. Because there's, you know, they could feel ashamed. You yeah. know, I there was a period of time when I got out the second time. Um, I was injured in I in Afghanistan, and there was a period of time when I, I couldn't work normally, didn't have enough money coming in, but yet I still had four kids at home and a roof to put over the head, and uh, I had to suck it up. And I went down and I would I'd get whatever assistance that I needed to make sure that my kids had food on the table and a roof over their head. You know, yeah. and some people want to say, well, that, you know, that. And it, there were people that said this or people that said, well, you shouldn't do that. You should man up, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, I just did man up. Exactly. My pride. And I took care of my family. Exactly. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah. It, it's a hard lesson to learn, but after you learn it, it's such a valuable lesson to have. Like just, just to know that being prideful is not a good thing, but to have pride, 
that's a good thing. I agree 100% on that. Yeah. I take pride in the fact that I was able to ask for help. And I take pride in the fact that I still to this day get support on a regular basis. Once a month, if not twice a month, I go to the VA for a group. Um, And it's, I talk to Julie all the time and there's other, other people, you know, is Sheila and other people that are part of organizations that I have constant contact with. And, and I take pride in the fact that I'm now able to ask for that help and receive it without guilt. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And again, that shows your, your leadership. To be honest, it does. Well, they say to be a good leader, you have to be a good follower too, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> So while you, the the period of time while you were in the military, you have, you have one of those proudest moments. In a way. Yes. Um, It was right before I had moved to Texas. My ex-husband and I had, we were already married, but he was in Texas and I was in Nebraska. I made staff sergeant in three and a half years. I was running the booster club for my commander. Um, I had put on this huge air show event. Um, Well, I mean, I didn't put the whole thing on, but um, I put a good portion of it on and it was extremely successful. And um, I remember going up to get that rank tacked on and just the pride, just the whole room and, and everybody knew who I was and my commander and just, it was, that was probably my most, um, when I think about my military career and I want to think about my happiest moment, I think about that because I was holding my daughter in my hands at the same time. So, <laughs> um, that was probably it right there. That was, that was the, the peak too. It kind of sort of went downhill from there getting, well, I had also already gotten picked up to be an MTL. So there was that as well. And everybody knew I was going to be leaving and moving on. And, and, um, I felt extremely accomplished and, um, like all my efforts had, had paid off and, um, yeah, I mean, I had some wonderful times in Japan as well, but those were more, um, personal fun things, not, not military things like that. Getting, getting staff sergeant tacked on in the situation and the way that I did, that was probably my proudest moment. So is there anything that you would like to share with any folks that are listening that um, have never served in the military uh, on, you know, what the culture of the military was like for you? Oh my goodness. Yes. So in the military, no matter where you go, you have a family, you show up to a new base, you instantly have a huge family. Everybody treats you like they've known you for their whole life. There, there's no trying to go and make friends or this or that you show up, you, they pick you up at the airport or whatever. And it, it you're part of a, a group, you're part of something. And, um, if you give the military everything you have, it will give you everything that they have. And the sky's the limit. And it's really just, um, you know, brushing the bad stuff off and accepting the good stuff. And, um, my biggest thing for people who are looking at joining or haven't joined or whatever is make sure that you pick a career field that you're going to enjoy. That leads right into the next question. I mean, if you have more to add to that, go ahead. Um, but the next question is, you know, you mentioned being an aerospace ground equipment mechanic. Is that something that you, that you 
chose to do or is that how, how did that come about? Um, I went in open mechanical, um, and that was because of my ASVAB. Um, I, I got like an 81, but the highest one was the the mechanical. And I've always been like, a I, I can fix anything. I mean, give me some zip ties, duct tape and super glue and I can make anything happen. Um, and just the way, you know, that everything that works together as it. And so that was something I always, um, I enjoyed, I loved it. And so, um, going in open mechanical that, that was, um, they also told me that there were, uh, that, that being an age mechanic was probably the one that I would get. Um, but if I had gone in medical or something like that, I would have hated my life going in open general. I mean, unless you literally don't care what you do, at least narrow it down to a career field. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, but you can always cross train or, you know, become MTL, MTI. There's there's so many other ways to to, you know, cross train in in, within the military. but that would be my biggest thing is, is find something you like. Cause I met many people that hated their jobs and I felt so bad for them. Yeah. I was fortunate. I also went general mechanical. Um, I ended up being a structural maintenance technician, uh, cross-trained over to control, corrosion control, and then later cross-trained into non-destructive inspection. So, oh, wow. Okay. We may have met each other then. Huh? <laughs> you no, know, my time was from, uh, 88 till 96, but oh, yeah, no, 96 was reserve time. Ah, got yeah, no, I was 16 in 96. (laughs) (laughs) I'm an old dude, (laughs) you don't like that old. I feel old. (laughs) Tell me about it. Me too. It's the beard day. (laughs) (laughs) Which one? (laughs) No, I think it makes you look younger. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh being a woman in the military was that how did that shape your experience um so oh, i that's part of the reason why i have a lot of physical ailments now was because i was a small attractive girl in the military and i was a mechanic and there was no way i was going to let anyone think that i was using that as my advantage and so nobody was going to help me with anything and i was going to and i now have degenerative back disease with two herniated discs and surgery on my wrist and i fractured my hip and all this crap because I was too prideful. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, a few years into it, I learned about leverage. And I remember making up all these contraptions. Like I had this metal pole that was hollow that I'd put on top of a wrench and then I'd go to the end of it to turn stuff, like uh, ways to make it work. And, um, (laughs) but yeah, as as a female, uh, you kind of have to, I don't want to say you have to prove yourself, but there's there's a general mentality especially in the maintenance world that girls just get in the way that's bullshit it is that is the general mentality i agree well there's a reason for it though sure you know well there's a reason for it it's because at some point in time there were some ladies that took advantage of that situation unfortunately yep exactly that's exactly what happened and yeah when i I went one of them (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, when I went back in the army, you know, I, I initially wanted to go back. I want to go in and I want to go infantry, but having a wife and kids, they were like, uh, no, we're not doing yeah. that. <laughs> um, I went as a vehicle mechanic um, and I made sergeant pretty quick and I had, had uh, I was the leader of the squad and I had a couple of ladies on my squad and they played that card very well. Yeah. Yeah. Very frustrating. And it was very, sad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really sad. Yeah. Yeah. See that take place. Yeah. And basically they didn't have pride in who they were. Honestly. Yeah. They were just trying to get the job done as easily as possible. Or not at all. <laughs> or have somebody else do it for them. <laughs> that was the biggest one. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And that's unfortunate yep. because that does typically give ladies in the military a bad rap. It does. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. It, it, no, it does. It does. Because I went into it knowing I had something to prove. Which I don't think men really go into the mechanical field feeling like they're going to be that they're going to have to prove who they are, what they can do. They just they're just they just go do it. You know, they. So, yeah, it's it's definitely those those few that ruined it for everybody else. One more thing in there. Um, so as a as a mechanic, uh, the camaraderie and the morale, I loved it. I was so in love with the military. I never wanted to leave once I became an MTL. And I don't know how much of it was because of my personal situations, but it was different. It, it was the policies and politics and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I did. It felt like everybody was out for their own and against each other. And, and everything was, Oh, look in this. And what is this? And what does this say? And can you do this? And what do you pen and quill and uh, hated yep. it, hated it, hated it. I, yeah. I really did that. Yeah, that being in, being in the mechanical world, ugh, working on the flight line and just with the whole maintenance crew, yep. uh, I would go back to that any day. Yep. Totally can relate to that. It wasn't <laughs> any different than when I was in. Um, you know, I when I first started, they put me in the shop and then they put me in the isochronal docks and then they put me back in the shop and then I finally requested to go to the flight line and I thrived on the flight line. Yeah. Um, but anytime I was in the shop environment, it was, it was all politics. It, yeah. you know, I, I would always get, I would get asked regularly, well, what have you done extracurricular for helping the community? Well, I did this and this. Well, that's not enough. Yeah. Check this box off and check that box off. Oh, a new commander is here. Let them reinvent the wheel so they can check this box off. Let me break something just to fix it. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah. it was ridiculous. But yeah, leave me alone on the flight line. I was good. Yeah. I didn't have any issues and yeah. I totally understand where you're coming from. Yeah. In this last part of Thea's interview, we discussed her life after leaving the Air Force moving to New Hampshire by herself to be closer to her kids, what life looks like today for her and her family, and the impact the Homeland Heroes Foundation had on her life while she reacclimated to civilian life. All right. Welcome back, Thea. Hello. Thanks for sharing your story so far. It's been incredible, honestly, to listen to. Hey, Definitely. I got to um, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That is true. Uh, so this... 
this last little bit, we're going to talk about uh, reacclimation to civilian life. Um, you've kind of talked about it in the first and second episodes, kind of where you are now, um, which is a very good place, I would say. Um, yes. You've dealt with a lot and you've come through on top, which has been, I think, absolutely incredible. So how long ago again was it that you got out of the military? I got out in February of 2014. So almost six years. I can't believe next year is going to be 2020. Wow. You're, yeah, it's been six years. Holy <laughs> crap. Yeah. <sighs> wow. Almost as long as you were in. <laughs> Just about. Yeah. Wow. It sure has. <laughs> it's crazy how it happens like that. It really, well, yeah, I just really started living life about four and a half years ago though. So I'm just going to count that time. <laughs> Relate to that. What were some of your biggest challenges reacclimating to civilian life? Um, for me personally, I, my home is on the West coast and, um, because of my ex-husband uh, getting primary custody of our kids, as well as getting kicked out of the military for the whole Lachlan sex scandal stuff. Um, he got out of the military before I did. So he took my kids from Texas and he moved to New Hampshire. Um, for four months, he was here with the kids. I was able to fly up here and see them twice. Um, I had, uh, I had, uh, I had a dirty UA and I was trying to battle it with a med board and I'd been going through that for about eight months. Um, I was trying to get leniency because of what I'd been through with my ex-husband. Um, and that's the time frame when I was sitting in the corner office in the basement, no window doing data entry. Um, and it finally came. I, I came to a point where um, I stopped fighting the battle. I told them I'm done. Kick me out. I don't give a crap. I'm done. And um, three days later, I was out. <laughs> so um, I uh, I packed everything I owned up into a U-Haul and I threw my my SUV on a trailer in the back and I drove all the way from Texas to New Hampshire in about 13 hours. Um, and I got here not knowing a soul in the world except for my ex-husband and my kids. It was the middle of winter. There was 10 feet of snow on the ground. Um, it, the, the, the place that I had leased, it was, you know, over phone calls and online. It wasn't ready yet. Um, it, it was, uh, I didn't have anywhere to go. They Luckily, they put me up in a hotel. Um, but I, I didn't have, in the military, everywhere you go, you have a new family. And you get out and you don't. You, you don't have anybody. And I mean, I wasn't home. I, I had nobody to help me move in. Um, luckily, since I'm a cute girl, there were the people that were shoveling the snow <laughs> and they actually came and helped me move all my stuff inside. I got so lucky um, not having family or friends or support or the VA or because of the way that I got out, I didn't go through taps. Um, I, I didn't get set up with anything. I was given papers and three days later I left. That was it. There was nothing else. And no so no transition assistance, no VA benefit briefings, none of that stuff. Nothing. Not a damn thing. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, just the, the feeling alone that was. And, and also the other part was that there's no structure out here. Like there's no. <laughs> things are disorganized and they're messy and there's nobody that's held accountable. And there's no, it just, it, it's, it's weird. It was weird. 
it was, it was very difficult for me because when I got out, I actually, I became a service advisor, um, at a car dealership. Um, being that I destroyed my body in the military, I couldn't really be a mechanic anymore, but that was the next best thing. And, um, I, I just remember the shop and the shop, like the way that people keep their tools and they show up late for work and, you know, be eating out on the floor, just all these things that just seemed so wrong to me. And it made me uncomfortable, actually. It really made me uncomfortable. I don't know that I've actually adjusted. I, it still makes me uncomfortable, to be honest. I don't like it. <laughs> I like order. <laughs> yeah, there are some things that are going to be hard to let go of. And, and, and rightly so. There's sometimes there's really no need to let go of them. So, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. There's nothing wrong with having thing in order. When was it that you reached out to the Homeland Heroes? Um, so, um, during my military career, um, on top of all the injuries that I have, um, I had a crown that needed to get replaced and I just so happened to get lucky enough to end up in the chair of a prosthodontic. And he was a captain going through his training and he asked me if I would be interested in having a full mouth reconstruction um, due to using methamphetamines for eight years. My teeth were completely fucked. <laughs> and I was like, hell yeah. So for about a month, about a year straight between my hip getting fractured and my mouth getting redone, I was on pain medication for just about a year straight. Um, when I went to Texas, um, I continued to do drug seeking through doctors. I'd get as much prescribed to me as I could. I would find them in people's medicine cabinets. That's how I ended up popping dirty on EUA. Um, but then I got out and, um, there's, there was no doctors. There was no, I didn't have any friends. I had no way of accessing it. However, in new England, it's the heroin epidemic. And it didn't take me too long to, to have that come across. Um, and um, I, I ended up uh, addicted to heroin and um, I was lucky enough to be given the opportunity to go through a six month uh, inpatient rehab program in California. And so I did that. And during that time frame uh, was when I finally got actually correctly diagnosed and we started playing with medications to get myself stable. Um, and it's still like that. This is four and a half years ago. Um, when I came back, um, I had nothing. I, I had pretty much sold everything I had um, to go to California. I wasn't going to put it in storage. And so, um, I didn't have any, I didn't have any furniture. I didn't have a bed. I didn't have anything else. And, um, I got connected with the VA and they, um, they gave me contact information for Easter seals, um, which is another organization and, um, Easter seals, uh, they connect me with Julie, um, for furniture. And so I reached out to Julie and, um, it's been history ever since me and her, we connected instantly. She's an amazing person. What she does is incredible. I, it makes me almost cry. So, uh, when I talked to Julie, um, me and my kids were sleeping on an air mattress and, um, and I asked her for beds for my kids. And, um, not only did she provide beds for my kids, she also gave me a bed. And that was just like one of those things like, Oh my God, like nobody can really quite understand how it feels to be able to have that provided for you. And, and after that, like me and Julie, like I, 
she's provided so much for me that the house that I have now, pretty much everything in here is because of Julie. She, she's, you know, I, I try to give her everything that I can and support her and, you know, the Homeland Heroes. I, I'm sure that if they've made this much difference in my life, I can only imagine how many other people's lives that they've made a difference in. Um, with my dad just moving here from Oregon, he's um, he's disabled. He's got neuropathy in his legs. He's got severe arthritis. And I live on the third floor, um, which has been difficult. Julie got him an adjustable bed. He's a veteran as well. Um, Julie got him an adjustable bed and a big recliner. And it just <sighs> there's other organizations that I've um, been uh, the it's the Salem Women's Club, but they do a lot of stuff with veterans as well. And they adopted me and, and my kids uh, for the year, provided us with Christmas um, and just <sighs> The VA too, like just, I, um, when I got back from California, um, the opportunity to use heroin again, uh, unfortunately was readily there just because everybody here was doing it. And my secret to staying away from that stuff was not knowing anybody who knew somebody who did it. I didn't have that as an option. And so, um, I went to the VA and I said, what am I going to do? Help me out here. So they got me started on Suboxone and um, with the Suboxone program, it's also um, it's it's very highly monitored and regulated and um, uh, groups all the time. And I constantly talk to my doctor and um, over the last few years, my medications have been um, tweaked and adjusted to the point where I get to be fulfilled and happy and feel like an actual person today. And before this, I can't think of a single time in my life that I actually truly felt okay without being on drugs. Like I actually like I'm happy and it's not because of an influence of some kind. It's just, I get to be chemically stable. <laughs> so I know you speak, spoke highly of, of the VA. Um, can you elaborate a little more on that experience is what specific programs have you found, um, that do really help that maybe you haven't touched upon yet? Um, yeah, with the VA, they have so many different connections. It's not just going to the doctor. Um, they can refer you to every and any agency for anything you need, um, as well as every single person that I ever saw, doctor, nurse, anything else, they were fully knowledgeable um, of where to send me if I needed help with something else. Um, and I know some people have had some bad experiences and actually I did somewhat in the past as well. Um, but it's come so far, even in just the last few years, um, with appointment times being available and days being available and, um, uh, promises being fulfilled. Um, and you know, all, all I have to do is say, Hey, I need help. And there's 20 people there. What do you need? What do you need? What do you need? And, you know, it's, I mean, not exactly like that, but, um, and it, you know, you, I never feel like I'm a burden. I never feel like I have to jump through hoops. Um, it's, I mean, there has been times that they haven't been able to do anything for me here with my hands. I needed another surgery. Um, and it's all screwed up because I had two surgeries on it already and there wasn't a hand specialist in the area. So they had to like send me down to Brockton. That was kind of a nightmare, but ultimately they were able to give me what I needed. 
And on top of that, they now, um, you can actually see, I, uh, I'm 90% uh, service connected disabled. And so I'm not quite sure how many benefits I have versus, uh, you know, a veteran that doesn't have that, but, um, they they have a, a, a program now where I'm actually able to pretty much see any civilian doctor I want. Um, I actually don't even have to get like a referral. I just have to call in for an authorization. Um, and it's that that's something that's fairly new. Um, but it, that that makes a huge difference. The closest VA to me is a half hour away, which isn't that far. But when you work 60 hours a week and you have two kids, it, it is far. And so being able to have a doctor that's right around the corner for a chiropractor, or whatever, um, it makes a big difference. Yeah, the Mission Act has um, really freed up a lot of vets to be able to get get help when they need it, as opposed to waiting a lot of times, you know, the VA can get full and you're waiting for an appointment where the new program, actually, you can go outside of the VA. I see an orthopedic specialist about 30 minutes from my house as opposed to driving over an hour to the VA. And it's their top-notch orthopedic um, specialist, which is really awesome. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it definitely is a lot, lot different than it was before. And it's, it is so much better. I mean, even just being able to go to an urgent care close to me versus even if I had to go to the emergency room, I mean, unless I was about to die, I had to call in for an authorization or I had to go all the way out to Manchester to go to their urgent care for them to send me to a hospital or whatever the case might be. And so, yeah, it really, it, it is, it is absolutely wonderful. Could either of you elaborate um, for those that might not understand like what the VA does? Um, and Dave, you mentioned the, I think the Mission Act. Um, can you elaborate a little more on what that means for veterans and um, people in the military? It's a program that allows people who are 40 miles or more over to that from their VA to actually receive care within their community from a doctor or a specialist within in their, in their community, rather than have to travel all the way down to the VA. Um, it's just a means of getting a lot of times it allows them to get faster care as well. So prior to this, veterans weren't able to get care unless they had possibly like maybe um, private insurance or something like that, they had to go to the VA. Is that correct? Private insurance, or they'd have to go to the VA and then get a referral outside of the VA if the VA did not have that particular specialty. Yep. Which and then trying to get the VA to pay for it afterwards. Oh, my God. Yep. I had to get a congressional one time to get them to pay a bill because they coded it wrong. Right. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. A lot of veterans, I think they don't go and get care because of that. And so now they actually will get help or get care. Yeah, a lot of them don't want to deal. I mean, it's not like it was. It's definitely gotten a lot better. Um, but at one time, just the wait to get care was horrendous. And it, 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 I don't want to get political here, but there are people that clamor for socialized medicine well, they need to take a look at the VA system because that's exactly what it is. And it, it, when, you, when you put a lot of people in that system and you don't have enough resources for those people, 
it clogs it up and it takes a lot of time to get the care that you need. And a lot of vets, you know, Theo, you're right. A lot of vets just stopped because they didn't want to deal with it. Um, and yeah. it's just the way, the way it was, it's got, like I said, it's, it's improved greatly. And part of the reason why I moved where I moved is because of the care I received at the VA. And, and, you know, doesn't mean there hasn't been hiccups. You know, I personally fired four doctors. <laughs> and they looked at me funny when I did it, but I'm like, no, this is my health care, not yours. You're fired. Give me somebody else. <laughs> no, but it it's has, nice. it's improved greatly. Yeah. And they, they now have access to care. Uh, the, the mental health department, I think, is bigger than any other department in the VA now. And they have access to care. The hours that they have are crazy. Like they're, they're available all the way from like 7 a.m. And some of the groups go till 8 p.m. Um, and, and they have support for everything and anything. And if they can't offer it right there, they have direct connections with agencies that can. That's fantastic. There's, there's such a stigma, I think, around, well, I know, uh, around mental health. Um, so it's, it's good that there's so many programs that are proactively trying to help with that and take that stigma away. Sometimes it can be really, really hard just to reach out for help in the first place. But then if it's yep. hard to get that help, once you reach out, you just stop. Absolutely. It's probably some of that pridefulness coming into place as well. Yeah. If you had to do it all over again, would you? Um, parts of it. <laughs> no, actually, that's not true. I am probably the happiest person I've ever met in my life um, today. And so I guess I would, but only if I could just fast forward to now. <laughs> I wouldn't want to go through it again. However, I, I don't want to not feel how I do today. I, 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 I want, I wouldn't feel the way I do today or be who I am today without the experiences that I've had. But I definitely, I would never, I would never relive my childhood again. I would rather die. Um, <laughs> but um, there was a few years uh, the, the, in the time frame of wanting, of attempting suicide that I would never want to live again. Um, but the rest of it, hell yeah, I would do it again any day. What advice would you give to someone enlisting? Know what you want. Know what you want and figure out what it takes to get that and research stuff. Like if I had researched into being an MTL before I just did it, I would have realized I was going to hate it and maybe I wouldn't have done it. But the only thing I was focused on was getting to Texas and how could I get there? And, um, but just know what to expect and research it. And if you know what to expect, then you know what you need to do. Um, don't just, just, don't just jump into things, look into it, think about it. 
So Thea, for the benefit of those who never served in the military that may be listening to the podcast, could you explain what an MTL is? Um, an MTL is a military training leader, which is um, basically a secondary drill instructor. Um, after you go through boot camp, you go to your training school. Um, and I was the sergeant in charge of the training school. Um, so I actually ran the drill team. Um, it's not quite as intense or as strict as boot camp. Um, but it is a, a lot more strict uh, than the, the, the functional Air Force. Yeah, they still go through a phase system, correct? They sure do. Yep. yep. That way you don't have people going crazy once they get out of basic. <laughs> yep. Oh, man. Yeah, and I was at uh, Fort Sam Houston, and they had just started up the, the joint forces for the medical. Yep. And when I got there, there was 14 MTLs, me and, me and 13 others, and there was 10 airmen. By the time I left, there was 1,200 airmen and 20 MTLs. So, yeah, it. Um, but it was a two billion dollar dormitory, and it was it was. That's not what I went through. I remember going through Shepherd. <laughs> Everything was falling off. And <laughs> oh, yeah. I did Lackland, and then I went to Chanute, which is oh. longer. So it pretty pretty dilapidated. In fact, yep. my son graduated. Uh, Air Force Basic, um, I want to say early 2016, and I went down to Lackland for his graduation, and I went to my old barracks. <laughs> was, was it like, redone? No, it's still. Oh, they've redone the a lot of them. It was. Wow. And he was in the brand new one. Wow. He, but I went down all the way to the other end of the base, Across from the old chaparral, which is not even there any longer either. The chaparral rec center used to be there, and I'm across. We were literally across the street from that in our barracks. So, but they were they were there from the 40s and 50s. That's what we yeah. stayed. Yep. Uh, yeah. Probably the same mattresses too. Man, those green plastic mattresses. God. Yes. Oh, and another thing is going into basic training before you leave. Eat as much as you can and sleep as much as you can because you're not going to get to do either of those things for about right. two months. Right. <laughs> I'm to go to the bathroom really fast too. Yeah. Oh, and get yourself in shape. If you go in, if you're in shape and you go in, you're going to sort of survive. You're going to get killed, but you're going to, if you go in and you're not in shape, oh my God, you're going to hate your life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so is there, um, is there anything that you wish civilians would understand about our military um, or our vets? Um, the biggest thing that I wish people would really get is that not everything is a choice in the military. Um, there's a lot of decisions made for you and you don't get the, the op. You can't say no. You, you can't turn it down. You just have to do what you're told to do. And if you don't, you go to jail. And it's not just regular jail. It's military jail. And that's even worse. And um, the biggest thing, yeah, for those that aren't in the military, you don't get to choose everything. Things that happen, they happen to you, not not a choice that you made. Um, I, I can't, I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot that I want to say, but I can't think of anything right now. <laughs> eh, no worries. I remember a, a funny story. I remember um, I was at Lackland and I had base pass. So I was somewhere on base. I can't remember where it was. I ended up passing the correctional facility 
And I literally, uh-huh. saw, I literally saw people outside, hands and knees on the grass, cutting the grass with school scissors, like the round yep. top, <laughs> the safety ones. And they're yep. literally the grass with those. And I was like, I don't know what they did, but I don't want to do what they did. And I don't want to go there. <laughs> yep. Yep. And yeah. And in the, in the regular world, they could never make somebody do that in the military. They can make you do whatever they want. So don't think you have any power or control because you don't. <laughs> oh, and the other thing for those that have been in the military, don't be afraid to reach out for help and don't feel guilty or ashamed if you need it. Agreed. There's plenty of help to go around. Don't feel like you, somebody else deserves it more. Exactly. Yeah. As much as anybody else does. And your experience when you get help will help somebody else. Exactly. And you should never compare your experience with anybody else's anyway, because we're all individuals. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there anything else you'd like to share before that we might have missed? Um, not that I can think of. No. Of course, I'm going to think of 10 things later, but (laughs) God goes. Uh, This has been, I think, an incredible insight into how different everyone's first, everyone's experience in life is. And secondly, how different military, how different your experience is um, from each individual in the military. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So definitely, I want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you for your service. Um, Thank you for coming on today and and sharing your story and being so open with us. Um, It's an incredible journey that you've been on. And I'm so happy to have um, met you and hopefully sometime I can meet you in person. I'm sure Homeland Heroes will probably cross, uh, paths will cross at some point. Um, But yeah, Um, Dave, anything else you want to say before we jump off? Um, I appreciate your time as well. Thank you for your service. One veteran to another. Um, I hope at some point we might be able to meet. There's a few things that wouldn't mind talking about offline um, that, that I think would make sense for both of us, but um, just, just on experiences and, and life in general, so to speak. But um, I really appreciate your time. You're being willing to be open, transparent, uh, not many people want to share the good, the bad, and the ugly of their lives. And uh, like I said, the people that typically do are the ones that you typically should look for for leadership. So I, I appreciate that. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's an honor to uh, to have gotten to do this. And thank you for your service as well. We hope you enjoyed listening to Thea Gerbic's story. Thank you for joining myself and David Binford. This podcast is brought to you by the Homeland Harris Foundation an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org and follow the Homeland Heroes Salute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you to our production team at DairyCam, creating connection through story for a better world. Learn more by visiting dairycam.org. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the Uniformed Services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, or any other organization. Thank you for listening, and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Heroes Salute wherever you listen to podcasts.